Well, we're one month and a half into this retreat for some of you, and for some of you, we're halfway through the month. But I'm sure nobody noticed that, right? (laughs) That didn't come up in your mind for (laughs) review. was actually the halfway point at lunch. (laughs) Not that I'm counting. So, So, you know, we're still trying to figure out what we're doing. (laughs) You know, the the Buddha has this saying, uh, whatever you think it will be, it is always other than that. And this probably is most true in relationship to retreats. It can be quite a roller coaster. You know, you just think like you're getting some traction, you're getting a grip. Morning was good. <laughs> you, go, you go into the hall in the afternoon and you're like, where did, where did I sit now? What did I do? Where did I put that blanket under my knee? <laughs> you know, did I bow to the back altar first? It's like we're kind of looking for the talismans, you know, the little, the little secrets to make it unfold in the same kind of way uh, in the afternoon. Steve Armstrong has this this saying, and he says. Nothing like a good sit to spoil the whole day. (laughs) Not that there's any clinging there, you know, but... So, you know, you notice the the mind can be happy doing this and be like, I could... this is great. I feel so at peace with this simplicity. I could, I could do this a really long time. And then, uh, you know, the next day you're like, I'm waiting till it's dark and then I'm hitching. <laughs> I'm out on Sir Francis Drake, you know. <laughs> I'll only take the important things. They won't notice I've left, you know. <laughs> uh. It's not like we ever get to like a steady state sort of situation where it all feels, you know, all feels the way that we prefer it and the way that we imagine it should be forever and can keep it that way. Because things don't actually uh, proceed in a linear fashion with this process of uh, exit experiential learning that we're immersed in. It's not linear. So it's a really good thing that the founder of this whole system was somebody who was very uh, analytical and he could really put it into a framework. You know, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Seven Factors of Awakening and the Five Hindrances and the Five Spiritual Faculties and the Four Brahma Viharas and the Three Characteristics and the, right, go on and on. And it's a really good thing that he was that way because his capacity to, you know, encode his insight into words and into structure is probably the reason we have the teachings today and they're still potent. So it's the the founder's awakening, his ability to put it in such a organized fashion that it could be memorized and passed down through time. But the other key factor in that is there have always been practitioners that have realized it. So it's not like it's just found its way into, you know, some antiquities collection as some uh, 
rolled up document, but rather the people to whom the Buddha offered the teachings recognized their preciousness and undertook to both practice it and to support it, support it with um, gifts to teachers of the requisites, but also in, in the case of people deciding to offer their lives to the study and practice of Dharma in order to become teachers of the next generation. And all of this supported by the lay people. So we human beings have a capacity to screw things up quite badly, as you may have observed. But this preservation of the teachings because of multi-generational support and stewardship by communities in Asia is really one of the great acts of human care and responsibility. It's a great gift, a great gift, and we're the beneficiaries even, even now. So now, because the teachings are structured, we're able to hear them in a stru- presented in that kind of way, and then maybe memorize them, maybe, you know, kind of like intellectually know what they are. And then here we take the next step, we're actually trying to put them into practice in a very particular kind of way. So here, within the lab of our own heart and mind, we're taking these teachings and we're trying to see how they apply, how they fit with our subjectivity as it arises moment to moment. So in real time, we're looking to see how we can reconcile these teachings with what we're actually meeting, what we're actually knowing. And this is really where the assimilation takes place, right? Is in this very process that we're doing here. And we're doing it in order to realize the same liberation that the Buddha himself experienced. So if you looked at Vipassana practice, there's a certain kind of way in which you could say that the progressive instructions offered in the the context that we offer them walks you through the Buddha's key insights and conclusions so that we can see for ourselves. In other words, we're offering coaching through a process of seeing how the mind gets caught, how it gets lost in delusion, lost in its own suffering, and how it can unhook itself. And this is what we're training to do. So on retreat, you know, we try this, we try that. You know, we remember this teaching, remember this frame, we remember this technique, we remember this instruction. You know, sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes our idea about what constitutes it working bears examination. And this is part of what happens in the practice meetings, right? Your teacher may challenge your view um, or interpretation of what's going on or uh, to put it in a more pleasant way. They would supplement your understanding. <laughs> right? And, that, and that's part, part of the role, right? Because you, you wouldn't want... Um, want to let some misunderstanding just kind of like roll along they're sitting after sitting. So sometimes there, there needs to be the teacher saying, uh, I don't think it's exactly like that. I think it's more like this. And this is where you might look 
um, what if you, instead of relating to it or holding it as this, you held it as in this kind of way? Or what I'm hearing as you're talking to me is maybe there's um, um, this going on as part of how you're attending to that experience. And perhaps if you let go of that experience and you attended to how you're attending to it, something might open up for you. Right? So you get coaching both in, in context and in, in wise effort. And most of this talk is really going to focus in on wise effort. and um, It starts with a story. And this is a story about my niece, Alexandra. Okay, when she was in college, she got into this uh, activity there called uh, Woods Women Competition. Have you heard of this? Woodsman Competitions. This is actually televised some places. So her now husband was into it too. So this is an activity where outdoorsy types of people (laughs) do things like uh, dragging logs around and throwing logs around and sawing wood and climbing trees uh, while being competitively timed. Okay. So one of the activities that they have there and that we have on video, which of course I, I saw with my Dharma eye because, you know, There's Dharma everywhere, there really is. So one of the things they were doing was starting fires from scratch, you know, without like a lighter (laughs) or a match, you know. We're talking real old school. So uh, some of of you who were in, I don't know, scouts or wilderness training or something know about this, but they actually start with like a small pile of wood shavings and then they strike a flint, right? They strike a flint, and the, the flint creates a spark. And the idea is, well, you're going to take the spark, this little, this little flame, this little bit of fire, and we're going to put it next to something combustible, and that combustible thing is going to catch. So eventually the flint strike would land on a shaving in such a way that it would, when gently blown upon, catch fire. Okay, so you got the, you got the beginning thing going there. But then, to get a real fire, you have to gradually add fuel in just the right way. Have you ever tried to do this, like in a fireplace or something, try to get a fire going. There's really a kind of art to it. So, you know, know, gradually they would put on bigger pieces, right? First it would be more like kindling size pieces of wood that would catch. But they need to take care not to toss on like big logs, in the early stages, because then it would just suffocate the fire, it would put it out. So it really takes close observation to do this skillfully. And of course, how do you, how do you learn how to do it skillfully? Well, you understand the basic principles. And then you try to do it and you observe what's happening as you try to do it, right? You're like present there with it. So you're watching, right? You notice when the fire starts to splutter if you threw some big thing on there and maybe you're like, whoa, take that out. Toss more kindling, just a little bit though. Right, you're observing it as you're, as you're going along. So it requires a certain kind of focus and uh, care 
that's committed to getting this done, but it's sensitive to what's actually happening as you're doing it. So clear about, clear about the goal, clear about the point, clear about what your, the basic idea is and the, the raw materials are. And then you need to try and observe. Try and observe. Take feedback from what's happening. Observe. Do what intervening would seem to be skillful. So, you know, too little focus and not enough fuel and it goes out. Too much greed to get it right away, shoveling on too much wood too early, it goes out. So this is a secular version of wise effort. The right kind of effort applied with care and attention. So we're looking at the Eightfold Path. You will notice that wise effort is the sixth step. So it follows the, the pieces about sila. You've got the wisdom part first, the orienting um, first and second steps. Then you have the, the sila steps. And then you've got wise effort. And it, the understanding is that this now is part of the concentration piece of the path. Because it's followed by wise mindfulness and wise concentration. And they kind of are bunched together for reasons that you will understand if you consider what's required to develop wise mindfulness and wise concentration. So remembering that it's wisdom that liberates the mind. So this section basically says wise effort is required to develop wise mindfulness which supports the arising of wise concentration. You can't have wise concentration unless the mind is already grounded in wise mindfulness. And you can't get wise mindfulness up and running, i.e. the flame going, unless you make wise effort. And the mental factor that's associated with wise effort is virya, virya. And this is a kind of strong energy. And he talks about this is very important piece. He, the Buddha, talks about this is a very important piece of the Dhamma. And he talks about energy and effort a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And you can see why that would be so, right? Because in a certain kind of way, as you found out for yourself, even though we have ways in which we are already developed and we already have wholesomeness to us, this process of transforming the mind of us moving in the direction of greater wholesomeness, more capacity of mind. This is an uphill process. I can remember at one point in my relationship, my my partner said to me, oh, you're quite a little salmon. You feel that way sometimes, doing this? Quite a little salmon. Hmm. So it's interesting, this, this were, these words though, uh, energy and effort, because we know for ourselves they can appear in different forms. 
you know, if, if you consider, you know, the same factor of energy could be used to, you know, pursue um, colonial plunder. Or it could be used or shown in the Buddha, in the Dalai Lama's decades-long efforts to find a place for Tibet that's free. Same kind of commitment to getting something, but one arises associated with unwholesomeness and the other arises associated with what is skillful and wholesome. So this this speaks again to the importance of recognizing that the effort that we're talking about takes place within this larger frame of the Eightfold Path. Of, and it's aligned with generosity, loving-kindness and compassion and wisdom. And it's aligned with renunciation, and compassion, and wisdom. So, you probably recognize from those lists that I'm now talking about the first and second steps on the Eightfold Path. So, when you, when, then when you get to this stage, this wise effort step. There's this teaching on the four great endeavors that basically takes the, the binary that was talked about as part of mundane wise view and basically re- reiterates this is, this is big picture what you're cultivating and what you're letting go of. What you're letting go of as unwholesome, unskillful, and what you're developing. So it starts with what one should let go of or undercut by removing the circumstances, the conditions for its arising. And then it goes to the development the initiation of wholesome states and their cultivation, their strengthening. So we're talking about wholesome energy being called forward to do this practice. To ride with, to further develop what's already wholesome in the mind. And to deal with, (laughs) to work with, to find wise relationship to what is undeveloped at present. And you would recognize that by the the hindrances, correct? So we want to bring forward what is conducive to, to liberation and practice a kind of renunciation relationship to what is undercutting our efforts to free the mind. So wise effort isn't a standalone kind of thing. It happens in a particular context. So a first thing that needs to be overcome for us to be able to make wise effort is doubt. And, you know, you know for yourself whether on this retreat or at other times in your life or under other circumstances, if there's a lot of doubt in the mind, the effect is kind of paralysis, right? I mean, you can't really put your back into it. right? You can't really pick up the oar and row because you don't know where the boat is supposed to go. And uh, when doubt is described in uh, images, 
the image that's given for a being who's in the middle of a, a doubt storm is like somebody standing in the middle of a desert. Presumably this is a big desert, a very sandy desert. And there's no identifying features in any direction. No signposts, no landmarks, nothing. They're standing in the middle of the desert and looking around. And they just, like, stand there. They can't initiate movement in any direction. So faith, which is the, uh, the first of the five spiritual faculties, is this very important piece in being able to make wise effort. And what is faith? It's a, a kind of confidence that supports application of the mind. And classically this faith sadhas is described as faith in the Buddha uh, and the Dharma uh, and the the Sangha. But there's another way to, to hold it and that is enough faith in yourself, enough confidence in yourself that you're willing to run the experiment of putting your heart into it to see what happens. And it's faith in the sense that we're meaning it does not refer to a lack of critical intelligence. If you look at where effort is applied, it's applied to the generation of and the application of the seven factors of awakening, primarily. And what is the second factor of awakening? Team. Investigation. Investigation. So it's faith enough to look into it. Seriously look into it. So the mind isn't wavering. It's committed. So the seven factors of awakening are actually what are opening and developing and balancing in the course of Vipassana practice. Have we talked about those thus far? No? Shocking. (laughs) Okay, the first one. Mindfulness, right? Sati, sati. Lead horse, always wholesome, accompanies any wholesome state, sati. And then what does sati do? In Vipassana practice, it investigates. What is this? What's, what's happening? What is, what, is being, what is being known? You know, what is the attitude of the mind? This is a hindrance. Is it rising? Is it passing away? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? It's like, what's happening? That's the first. Recognition of the object. Or recognition of what's being experienced. The noticing of, or the softening into receptivity of it. Some of it's, uh, particulars. If you think about the the refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, one of the things that the Buddha talks about is noticing um, 
the arising and passing away of things, noticing the mind turn to the arising of things, the passing away of things. Noticing what is happening with what we experience, what it does, its behavior. Does that mind state stay? Does that mind state go? Does that mind state seemingly get replaced by another mind state? Does it get stronger? Does it open into a new present moment experience? We're tending to process. Mindfulness investigation. Investigation in and of itself raises energy. And you know for yourself, you know, when you get really interested and curious about something, you don't have to make yourself pay attention to it. Right? You're kind of just there. Sometimes when I talk to people about their relationship, uh, say they're practicing for samadhi and... um, they're working with uh, the breath at the Anapana area. I'll say to them, you know, when you go to the breath, go to the breath like this, you know, don't be tight, don't be forcing. I said, it's more like, you know, imagine you uh, met somebody for the first time and there's something about that person that you just met that's just really interesting. And you have this intuitive sense that there's really something to learn here and that this relationship could be important to me. When you saw that person again, you wouldn't have to like make yourself pay attention to them, right? You'd be already there. Receptive, interested. You would, you would let their presence in a certain kind of way fill your mind, fill your attention. Because you would have an intuition of potentiality there. So investigation rouses energy. And when the mind is interested and it has some energy, then it's very interesting, this quality of PT, rapture arises. You know, and there's the, the tingly stuff in the body. But the more, the more significant part of, of rapture is that it's really rapt interest. Now the mind is like, whoa, really into seeing what's there. It's like you're no longer needing to like apply the mind in the same kind of way. You're like, wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And from that interest and the balancing these factors, then, then arises calm, tranquility, basadi, So the excitement kind of dies down a little bit, but now it's contentment. The mind gets smooth, it's interested in its experience. It isn't reaching out for other things, and it realizes in this um, state of pasadi, this tranquility, there's contentment there a non-material contentment that's not being caused by getting, being, becoming. So the mind's calm now. It's easy to see, finds it easy to see its uh, experience. The hindrances are, are going down and there arises concentration. Unification of mind. 
a mind that's not distracted, that largely closes out the hindrances. And with concentration, now the mind is able to see its experience much more clearly. It's as if you've got uh, a pair of cheaters on. (laughs) You know the glasses people wear to read? It's like magnified. It's like, oh, now I'm seeing more. Now I'm understanding more. Seeing more means understanding more. Understanding more means the mind becomes less reactive, becomes more inclusive to what arises. It's less dominated by the pleasant, unpleasant, pushing and pulling of Vedana. And thus equanimity arises. So you enter into a virtual, virtuous cycle with the development of these factors. And every time this, and with this, all of them strengthen. Now they can come in and out of balance with each other. And that's part of the practice too. Recognizing this and balancing it. And a lot of what the teachers look listen to for in the practice meetings is about balance. Is there too much energy here? You know, too much like leaning forward and wanting? Would one do better to uh, do less noting right now and maybe to like go to a single object for a while and uh, rest the mind, develop a little bit of concentration, a little bit of calm? Where's the time for somebody to really pick up investigation because they keep falling asleep on the cushion? They need to rouse energy. Like, step it up. Put some more load on the noticing system. Get some energy going there. Apply mindfulness. Do more investigation. So you're working out your own deliverance in in real time. You probably know the the story of Sona. Do you know the story of Sona? So this is uh, in the suttas. The Buddha The Buddha became aware of one of his monks who was having a problem. So, if only you had the Buddha to respond cyclically to your distress, come to see you and offer you advice. Um, So he had a monk, a young monk, and in lay life this particular being was a lute maker, right? So he made instruments, stringed instruments. And apparently he was quite, you know, refined and gently, gentle kind of person. Um, And he was very determined that he was going to wake up. And, but his practice wasn't going anywhere. He was doing the walking, but as the story goes, I think this is outside the sutta, but the story goes, his sister was kind of like keeping an eye on him. There's kind of a theme in some of these stories, kind of like the female is like watching that. Um, So is watching what's going on with the brother, and he's doing walking meditation, but he's doing it bare feet, but he's doing it like on rocky area. So as he's doing the walking meditation, his feet get all messed up. So 
but he's been persisting, but the, the Buddha recognizes, well, the sister is probably more concerned that he's messing himself up. The Buddha is noticing that he's getting ready to bail. So the, the Buddha comes to him and basically offers him a teaching on wise effort, and he says something along the lines of, okay, so before you started doing this, what was your work? And he said, I was a, a loop maker. And the Buddha says, well, yes. Yep, just like that. Well, so you're a loop maker. So when you were working with the loop, when you tuned it too tight, did it work? And he said, no, it was too high. And he says, well, and if you didn't, if you didn't crank the strings enough, did it work? And he said, no, it was flat. And the Buddha said, just so, just so. You don't make too much effort and not listen to how the string sounds. All right, you don't make too little effort and not listen to how the string sounds. How do you know what right effort is? You listen to how the string sounds. Right? You take feedback from your own experience about whether effort is too tight, whether it's too loose, whether it's skillful or not. So I'm going to go through and give you some uh, particular examples that I have observed, uh, either in my own self or in um, people I've worked with on retreat, where effort can kind of go a bit awry. So understanding that the real goal is skillful effort appropriately applied. Well, how do you know what skillful effort? Hmm. Especially considering that there are times where skillful effort is no effort. And sometimes skillful effort is you just Grind it out. Is very sometimes it can be very resolved and determined. And nope, not gonna do that. Nope, not gonna do that. Nope, not gonna do that. Coming back. Nope, not gonna do that. Nope, not gonna do that. Coming back. Coming back. Coming back. Coming back. Coming back. Coming back. I've described a big range there. So how do you know? This is the role of mindfulness and understanding the kind of higher level framing of what it is you're trying to do. So remember those seven factors of awakening? That's what you're cultivating in this whole whole process. Lead horse, mindfulness. So in a certain sense, the first task is always about summoning and sustaining mindfulness. Because without that, nada is possible in terms of wise effort. I've exhausted my... Spanish vocabulary. <laughs> but so let's let's take a look at, at some of this. Uh, some examples of too much, too little effort to see if we can recognize some skill there and make some adjustments. So let's start with uh, too little effort. Unwise effort. Version 1. 
So if the following signs are present in practice, it may be a sign too little effort is being generated for the practice to be effective. One, little attempt to be clear about what the instructions are or to follow them. Now, this is a really interesting one to me because I, I've been teaching a, a while now, not forever. I didn't get my gray hair teaching. <laughs> but I've been doing it a while. Um, so when I teach at the, the Forest Refuge, which has like an open, kind of like an enrollment date, so people can come and go, you know, through the month that you're teaching there. And people come from a, a lot of different styles of uh, Vipassana practice. The first thing I'll, I'll do in a practice meeting with people is ask them what set of instructions they're using. Okay, I would say 20% of the time they look at me blankly. Okay, we don't want to be bound to and governed by practice instructions. But it's good to be able to say, to know and to say what you've set up for yourself. Are you working with the attitude of the mind towards experience? Are you working with a primary object? Are you working with a single object for concentration? Are you using noting? Are you... Okay. The instructions are the support for the guided tour of your own mind stream. So you don't need to cling to them, but you should at least kind of like know the basic themes. Okay. Uh, Number two, listlessness or boredom that's not recognized as an experience and a cause for investigation. So, you know, the mind's like, "Mm." (laughs) It's so boring. (laughs) It's like the same old, same old. (laughs) Okay, that's a state. (laughs) You recognize that's a state? That's often accompanied by the lamentation to the teacher of nothing's happening. How can that be possible? How can it be possible nothing is happening? There is something happening. It's just you're not that interested in it. (laughs) Okay. Unfocused and being okay with this. Indulging the blur. Just kind of like graying out. Not a lot of investigation there. Uh, passivity or defeatism when obstacles arise. Um, so when this is going on, I'm referring to a pattern where if it's not pleasant, it's not interesting. Mm-hmm. Dullness and sleepiness that you don't counter or try to bring mindfulness to. Sliding off into experiences of torpor or sinking mind and then just like hanging out there. Yeah. Somewhere at the bottom <laughs> bottom of the ocean. <laughs> you know, you're kind of moving. <laughs> Moving with the currents, but you know, it's like you're not like <laughs> turning towards the light and <laughs> you know, trying to spring, push off the, the bottom and get back up there. Okay, lack of confidence, willingness to try, you know, like I can't do it, I can't do it. There, there's something about me. 
that's especially bad. Okay, no sense of urgency or priority regarding practice. And related to that is no clarity about motivations or the motivations aren't deep. Having a powerful motivation is a huge asset in practice. You know, it's nothing like a bad diagnosis or, you know, a few people lost to you or getting old and seeing time is running out to kind of perk you up. But anybody who's here for like a one-month or a two-month retreat, you've got some kind of motivation. If you were going to state it to yourself and, and pull on it in practice, how would you say it to yourself? Do you say it to yourself? When you have those periods where it's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this right now. I don't want to go out in the hall. I don't want to do my walking period. And you can't make me. (laughs) We don't have any yogi wranglers out there, you know, like. (laughs) There's no, uh, you know, border collies (laughs) for yogis. I, I think that would be a good addition, though, to the, to the team, you know? Because they have so much happiness in doing it. Uh, you know, you might be able to, to borrow a little joy and perk yourself up. So, uh, those, those are some of the, the ones where the mind is pulling back, not really fully engaging, fully summoning effort. And then there's the too much effort, the parallel, unwise effort, to owe. So, and a lot of us have a tendency to over-effort, to over-strive, to try to make it happen. So, uh, this is very interesting, because this is the flip side of nothing is happening. So this is the, there's an it, and it needs to happen. And I am responsible for the it happening. Do you ever ask yourself the question, what is the it that I'm trying to make happen right now? I mean, what am I, what am I trying to make happen right now? What would that be? And is that a substitution for what is actually happening right now? <laughs> Which is really what the practice is, right? To attend to that. The question in the practice is, what is happening right now? in meeting that with mindfulness. Sometimes we, you know, almost want to like pole vault over (laughs) the present moment experience into some imagined, you know, improvement upon that. So if the following signs are present in the practice, these may be uh, indicators of Uh, the wrong kind of effort being generated and employed. And when I say wrong, misapplied and not effective for what you actually um, would benefit from. So the first one is insistence on specific outcomes or experiences. Fixed goals and views. This is the inner control freak. Can we have broad goals? Yes, I want to cultivate more mindfulness. Yes, I want to be more present. 
uh, with the breath. Yes, I want to uh, let go of the hindrance of craving. Yes, I want to. All good, all wholesome, all skillful. I want to not have this arisen this hour. (laughs) Or I want to have only this happen in this sitting. Mm -mm. Nope. (laughs) And you know, if you set yourself up that way, you will experience the truth of anatta. People ask, "How do you? How do you? How do you have the experience of not self?" Well, one way you have the experience of not self is you try to make something happen, and then you cry. <laughs> But I thought I was, I was like, I could do it the last sitting. Ungovernable phenomenon. What can we contribute in wise effort, wise attention, wise attention? That's our contribution. Wise attention and the paramis and some wisdom some willingness to practice with what's there. Okay. I've got a star by this on my list, so. Sees what happens in the practice as a reflection on self and really wants and needs to look good. So there's a lot of ego on the line. Oh boy. So, you know, there's been a fair amount of talk in the hall about the good yogi, bad yogi thing. It's like, oh my God. Sometimes people, you know, are hesitant to come into the practice meetings and say what's actually going on for them because, you know, there's kind of like a little bit of desire to, you know, protect the, the truth of what's being struggled with. It's much better just to like put it out there. I used to have an interesting experience of um, teaching with Joseph Goldstein on the three-month retreat, and often I was like uh, the other teacher. So people would see Joseph, and then they would see me. (laughs) Let me put it this way. Often I got a different version. I mean, if you can let go of that piece of this being like a deeply meaningful summary of how you are and what you can do and, you know, whether you'll be successful in your meditation career and (laughs) if you can see that as the, the ball of dukkha that it is, that's really good. Let go of that one if you can. I had the experience of practicing with Pawak Sayadaw, who, you know, is a very rigorous concentration teacher. And I won't go I won't go into the details of it, but <laughs> The first week I was there at about day four, it's, it's all about attending to the Anapana spot to the exclusion of anything else, including the body, <laughs> like all the time. And by about the third day, I had this thought come up in my mind. What if I can't do this? I'm a teacher. <laughs> What if I can't do this? I'm a teacher. 
Maybe I shouldn't be a teacher if I can't do this. Oh my God, what if I can't do this? <laughs> Unfortunately, the mind did say, okay, you believe that one, Winnie? You're done. <laughs> like, pack your bag, sister, because <laughs> there's no need to hang out here for another three and a half months. <laughs> this is Mara. So another, another thing is when the frustration level is high, but you double down on effort directed in the same way that isn't working. Okay, frustration at level is high. What, what does that mean? Just interpret that phrase. Frustration level is high. Does that mean there's a hindrance there? Is there craving there? Is there like a not wanting of something that's there? And instead of the mind turning towards that and knowing and practicing with it, it just, just kind of is going in the direction of like, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to like just... So this is a different thing than the mind just going, coming back, coming back, coming back coming back. This is more of the mind going, I'm going to get it. 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 (laughs) So this is, you know, an imbalanced reaction the mind isn't opening up, isn't clearly seeing what it's actually working with. Frustration is a state. You know, wanting it to be different, wanting to... <laughs> that's a state. Can you recognize that? Instead of the, the mind like closing in a kind of rigidity. And... Effort can be tiring, right? Even wise effort can be tiring at times. Sometimes wise effort actually generates energy. This is an interesting thing. When the mind is uh, in a virtuous cycle in relationship to the seven factors of awakening, but the body has its need. Right? And, and if you're working with like a pattern of a, a lot of difficult emotions, say, and things have been deeply unpleasant and painful, the counsel isn't to shrink from that or to withdraw from it. It's always about a question of balance. Can, can the mind stay with what's happening with balance? Can it actually sustain mindfulness in relationship to that? Wisdom in relationship to that? Compassion in relationship to that? Or is it just like, I'm going to get into that and I'm going to, I've seen this before, it's happened before, it's been dominating my life and this time it's here and I'm going to go into it and I'm going to fix it and I'm going to do it. Especially when the mind is tired. Right? That is not wise. When you're depleted, that's a time to practice in a different way or to take some rest. Right? You don't just kind of keep slamming your head. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I'm so tired, God. So I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I get it. So, you know, this is the middle path we're practicing here. How much effort and the type of effort you need is completely dependent on the totality of the circumstances. So how do you know that? 
mindfulness. Your own observation of the immediate moment. You know, is there a wind blowing to help the spark catch? Or do you need to blow on it? (laughs) So how do you know? Well, you look. You get the mind in the present tense gear and you observe. Remembering kind of the higher level frame, letting that inform the wisdom with which you proceed. So this is you waking up from inside your own experience. Using wise attention to your own experience in real time. That's the method. That's the method. That's the flint. Striking. Fire of illumination catching. And you just stay there. You see what's needed. And you learn how to read that. And that's... That's what's required, and you just keep doing that. Just like that. May our practice be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere. May we all awaken together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.